Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Chris and Eric's Long Box Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. Uh, this week we are doing one of your picks. So would you like to do the honors of giving the intro on what we're talking about? Alright, uh, so this is Superman Confidential, numbers 1 through 5 and 11. The stuff between the 6 through 10 are like different stories. I think this was sort of almost an anthology title. Um, and they just wound up finishing the initial story later for some reason. It's by Darwin Cook and Tim Sale on art. You'll find it normally collected as Superman Kryptonite from what I've seen, um, but we're, we're reading it in like the issue format here. I hadn't read this until deciding to cover this or something else by uh, Tim Sale, who recently passed and we wanted to cover a lesser read Tim Sale story, I think, on the pod, because he was obviously a titan of the industry, um, but everyone already knows to read Batman The Long Halloween, Dark Victory, the various Marvel color books that Ian Loeb did, and I hadn't read this and wanted to see what it was like when Sale was doing art for someone who isn't Jeff Loeb, and I think it's really great. Yeah, it is. It's a very good book. Uh, Before we dive into the full synopsis, like you said, we have Darren Cook and uh, Tim Sale. We also have Dave Stewart on the coloration. Uh, for lettering, we have Richard Starkings on issues 1 through 5, and then Jared K. Fletcher on issue 11, with editor Mark Chirello and associate editor Tom Palmer Jr. I also had never read this story before now. My impression of it, I guess correct me if I'm wrong if you know better, But my impression of it is that it's a story that's sort of free to do what the creators want to do in terms of this doesn't feel like it's meant to fit strictly within continuity, right? Because sort of certain things they do of Superman's past feels like the way in which he learns certain information about Krypton is sort of at odds of how it had been done before. Like it feels just sort of like a let's give these A-listers room to just do whatever they want. Yeah, I'm trying to think. DC, in terms of crises, this would be, I want to say, after Infinite Crisis, at which point for a brief time, uh, Superman Birthright was Superman's canonical origin, which this definitely doesn't work alongside in terms of, like, how he finds out about Krypton and the way that Lex is portrayed. Um, And then shortly after that, it's the secret origin version that Jeff Johns did, which I think also contradicts this. This could line up with the Burn Man of Steel stuff from pre-pre-crisis continuity, the um, immediate post-crisis on Infinite Earths. I hate talking about DC continuity like this. Um, But I'm fairly certain that that one also wouldn't necessarily work with this the way that I know Superman for all seasons was explicitly like meant to work with the Burn version. Yeah, I I think this is just an out-of-continuity story. This doesn't make any sense in terms of, like, how it ties into anything anyone else was doing at this point in time. Feel free to read this and pick it up. You will be able to understand everything. The, like, removal from continuity is not a bad thing, and if anything, it's nice. I would say if you've ever heard of Superman, you know all you need to to read and understand this story. And frankly, maybe if you've been living under a rock and you don't know who Superman is, 
you'll probably still be fine. It's very classic Superman in that way, where it just, like, this is Superman, it's, it's, if you've seen, like, the Christopher Reeve movie, it's that guy. It's, it's not the guy from Man of Steel, because this is good, but, like, it's very, watch one episode of the animated series, and you can read this. Yeah. Would you like to dive in, sort of, like, issue by issue, or where would you like to begin the discussion? Let's quickly summarize the whole plot, and then we can just, like, talk about specific details, because this is six issues, and, um, we normally cover, like, two or three on this podcast without going insane, and they're not- it's not like they aren't dense issues. You know, a fair bit happens over the course of the story, uh, but basically, we open with a large chunk of a glowing green rock landing in- um, I want to say this is meant to be Tibet, but I don't think it's explicitly stated. Yeah, I don't think they ever specifically give the country, but it is definitely nearby a Buddhist monastery in an Asian country. Um, and it's it's definitely from Krypton because Superman's rocket crashed into it, and that's why they're both on the trajectory to Earth. But obviously the little rocket that baby Superman was brought to Earth in goes and lands in Middle America. Then there's sort of a hard cut to the present where we get uh, Superman fighting, um, god I know these guys' names, Royal Flush Gang. That's it. The Royal Flush Gang, who I mostly know from the DCAU, there's like the stuff that ties them in with Joker and the Justice League show that's good. This is, so if you like, know Tim Sale's work from the Batman stuff that he's done, you're probably expecting something that's, like, kind of gritty, and the way that he draws Batman stuff is very noirish. The, um, the classic, uh, the light in the wind- through going through the window panes kind of thing. Um, this isn't that. It's still got that classic Tim Sale, like, high contrast, really, like, really heavy inks, um, look. But it's, with the colors being as bright as they are, and, like, there's a lot more space left outside of the inks to be flat, it's a very different aesthetic, but it's still very recognizably Tim Sale. And it looks fantastic. Yeah, it's like, I'm gonna stop myself from going on too long of a tangent yet for until we're after the plot summary. But a lot of it has to do with, like, how it's colored and the aesthetic that... Stuart is bringing on this book is like very different and much brighter than the likes of say a long Halloween so it feels very in keeping with like the image of 90s animated Superman very bright up up and away sort of thing and like with the Royal Flush Gang it's just like this immediate flamboyant supervillain threat for him to be fighting and it's all very Superman out of a cartoon, and it's just really immediately establishing the sort of aesthetic of what we're going for. Yeah, I I think I said earlier, it's very classic Superman, and it really is just, like, if you have, like, familiarity with what most Superman stuff is like, it just looks like that. Um, so, while, basically, um, you've got the classic Superman setup, Superman is Clark Kent, he wears the glasses and the lame hairdo to go and work at the Daily Planet, where he is in eternal flirtation with Lois Lane, who is actively dating Superman at this point, but has no idea that he's Clark Kent. Um, And then Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, my favorite Superman character, is there as well um, as the cub photographer. And the head of a newspaper, Perry White, 
is really pissed off because there is a new casino that's moved in. Um, and at the same time that this casino has been started up, and the guy who runs it, who's from um, like a Vegas crime syndicate, has come to Metropolis. Metropolis crime rates have like doubled. Basically, like he's like it's because of this, the timing of this gangster moving in and the rise in crime rates. It's too specific, so uh, we're gonna go ahead. We're gonna do a story. We're gonna expose this. And he specifically tasks uh, those three with watching this casino and figuring out what's up with this guy. A lot of how this book introduces the characters and plot, it just feels very streamlined and very efficient of like, we move quickly from the prologue with the glowing green Kryptonian rock which each issue has, like, another brief chapter of the prologue before we move back to Superman in the present day. But we, like, move through those, and then we get, like, Superman as Superman, you know, fighting Royal Flush Gang and other things as the plot moves on. We move on, like you said, to the Daily Planet. And from their introduction, we just get really quick establishment of just what the feel on these characters is and what their relationships are to one another you know we have the very competent and confident lois lane we have the sort of like dweeb but everyone's friend version of jimmy we have perry who like when he assigns the three of them onto the case about the casino it like opens with lois asking what's the story and he goes metropolis she's the story you know and there's a little lampshading of just like you know how silly it is but in a good way and essentially lois's angle for the mission is going to be for her to interview gallo the owner of the casino business and sort of be the like direct in on contacting and investigating him while Clark and Jimmy Olsen are basically just doing literal wiretapping and that sort of behind-the-scenes, like, techno part of it. And as the investigation moves forward across the issues, we have that overarching plot about what's happening with Gallo and the casino, and is he as horrible as he seems because he's so charming and Lois is having a great time with him? But also, there's just all this murder and these mysterious disappearances in his past, and what's going on? It seems too good to be true. And, like, that's sort of the larger what's going on, but a big thematic concern we have throughout is that this is really addressing the theme of Superman as invulnerable or not invulnerable. At some point in this, they give a specific timeline. I think he says something to the degree of two months or so that he has been acting as Superman in Metropolis. So this is like very early into his costume career. And, you know, everyone treats him as invulnerable, thinks that nothing can kill him. And he largely goes about his life this way, but he doesn't actually know that for sure. And that theme's gonna come up more and we'll get to that in the end, of course, with, you know, hint, hint, the glowing green rock is kryptonite. But he has to go on all these missions in between his time working as Clark on the journalism angle, with probably the most significant being this really long sequence of him trying to save a village from a volcanic eruption. And there are just like a lot of moments like that where it's just like, oh, I might actually die from just... Drowning in lava. 
yeah, like drowning in lava and specifically like talking like, well, my skin's pretty much impervious, but what about my lungs? And like all this talk of suffocating and just this long going theme while he's trying to work both missions at the same time. And we also have the strained relationship between him and Lois where she's dating him as Superman, but not as Clark. And there's the whole thing of at one point they have a date and he's late to it. And it seems like the relationship might just be ending because as interested as they are in each other, it's hard to have a romantic relationship with someone when they can't count on you to ever actually show up, even if the reason is because you're saving people. Yeah, um, after the uh, volcano scene, there's this really... I, I would say Hartwin, actually I think it's a very complex scene where he comes back home um, because in this continuity, unlike a lot, both of his parents are still alive, at least a little bit into him acting as Superman, which I think then makes this close to post-crisis. I want to say, yeah. Anyway, um, so he comes back having nearly died for the first time um, in that volcano. His suit is ruined and burnt and falling apart. And he, well, uh, he, he managed to get out of the volcano, but in the process, he um, was covered in lava, was literally spewing it out of his lungs. Um, a lady accidentally killed herself trying to get away from him. And like this horrific moment that he's just experienced and he talks about it to his father, and his father in a moment of, it's, it's toxic masculinity, says to not worry his mother about it, because the whole point is, any man who would put that burden on a woman he cared about, well, he just isn't a man. Um, and this is paralleling his relationship with Lois, and the way that he's been unable to really commit to it so far, um, and frankly the issues in his parents marriage uh if his dad is still thinking this way yeah he has that conversation with the parents and then with his dad before leaving again and shortly after that he flies back to metropolis to find lois lane having just gotten out of gallo's car because essentially she had been like scheduling time to interview gallo uh, that night she was going to have a date with Superman and after waiting a while for him to show up and then him not showing because he was doing the whole volcano a village saving mission. She ends up calling Gallo back to go speak with him. Superman naturally gets back just in time to see her getting out of the car. They have the whole that doesn't look like work conversation and they do the whole sort of thing of... Or Lois does the whole sort of thing of being, like, partially flattered that he would be jealous, but also you know full well that you can't expect me to only be exclusively holding out all my time and waiting for you when I can't count on your time. And they have just a sort of, neither one of them says, we're breaking up, but it's a very much, this can't go on like this sort of scene. Specifically with the phrasing, you belong to the world, not to me. Um, at which point, Lex Luthor shows up, and um, he has been... It's revealed that he hired the Royal Flush Gang, and he's trying to test Superman's limits. He explicitly had them um, create some of the dangerous situations with an exploding fire truck. Uh, create some of the dangerous situations with like a truck filled with liquid nitrogen, just to see, like, can he survive cold? 
Can he survive explosions? How can I kill him? What's going to damage him? Um, so we're just establishing here uh, that he A is competitive with Gallo, who's just shown up because now they're both like competing to be crime lord of Metropolis, but also he's explicitly trying to find ways of weakening or hurting Superman. But of course, the thing that is hurting Superman most is his personal relationships. You know, the whole Lois Lane pseudo-breakup thing. But shortly after that scene, we move to, I believe they call it Sick Kids Fun Day. Basically just like this giant press event uh, seems largely based around like children's hospital funding. And we see like all of these kids and they have like attractions of like all this food to eat and there's a clown and just like, you know, part, let's get all the kids together, part PR for the hospital and for like the donors to include Lex Luthor, the antithesis of charisma, taking the podium to start talking about how LexCorp is going to be donating this new medical equipment that will be less invasive and horrible for the patient, and yada yada yada. And as Lex is in the middle of speaking, a child is pointing and goes, Look, look! And Superman has arrived, carrying a gigantic cake that is so gigantic that it is bigger than his body, and the top of it is going off panel. And everyone just stops paying attention to Lex and is happy to see Superman. And Lex looks pissed off with his... Very dramatic eyebrows that we'll get more into later. Lex has a whole moment of, I'll just read, Ladies and gentlemen, please, it hardly seems fitting. We hear from a circus strongman with a penchant for baking at an event such as this. As he's trying to just get their attention back because he's just pissed at Superman's existence and it being interrupted. He's trying to corral their attention back. But everyone's just asking Superman for a speech. He flies up and through a letter getting passed from Gallo to Lois and then to Superman when he shows up, he reads a letter from Gallo who has taken this PR opportunity to one-up Lex and say how the casino is going to be donating its entire first period's worth of profits to the children's pediatric research and funding. And this moment of like rich douchebags like flexing at each other with Superman as a figure in between delivering the news. They're having a donate off. Yeah, it's like, think old school billionaires at least trying to buy public goodwill by like funding libraries and shit instead of just like poorly planned spacecraft flights. But yeah, donate off. Meanwhile, Lois still has Jimmy observing and on, just like you know, headpiece communication. And she informs her that she's getting static, saying that there's about to be a hit on some LexCorp trucks, which Superman then quickly flies to get to the side of the scene. And at this point, we cut to a scene of Gallo, dramatically naked in shadow, opening up this door, this, like, black door, and a green light emanating out from it onto, again, just his naked body, dramatic green and shadowy gallow. At the moment that the green light is appearing, 
Superman's face suddenly twists in pain and he starts descending down to the ground. And we can see that he's very close to the, like the distinctive uh, casino building. Um, so it's very much like it's a very good like cause and effect, even though he's not in the same like place. It's very clear that like this mysterious green glow is affecting Superman. What could it be? Um, I also want to note we do get to see Gallo's ass, so like we we can can confirm he is naked kryptonite light sunbathing. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, it's it's not much of a butt. This is for all of Tim Sale's strengths. He is not going on the kind of fruity straight artist list that we've established on this podcast. Maybe we'll read a work later on that does that, but. But this man is closer to the Hank Hill school of themes than the saucy Silver Fox Magneto school of things. No Lenel Yu Magneto butt? I would love to see a Lenel Yu drawn Magneto butt. This is nothing remotely of the sort. But yeah, Superman is crashing to the ground in pain. Essentially has no fucking idea what's going on because nothing has ever actually hit him this way before. Not even the volcanic missions, complications of breathing and everything. And it's essentially like he just got the life kicked out of him. He's just been instantly beat the fuck up just by being near this thing. And he doesn't yet fully know what's happening. And when he arrives on the scene... There are, like, these armed goons of Lex Luthor's wearing just some sort of sci-fi armor shit, like big steel gauntlets and whatever the fuck else sort of armor beating up on him. And Lex is, like, meanwhile watching through camera, seeing the men he sent to fight Superman on the scene. And Lex himself is just like, this tech can't possibly be hurting him that much. There's got to be something else going on. Which tips Lex off in his head, you know, just thinking, finally, something is hurting this bitch. I need to figure out what. But during this scene, we just keep cutting between the actual fight and then Gallo back at his building. And then eventually ends up with him closing the door on the kryptonite. At which point it is then contained within like its lead container and Superman can feel that the source of the pain is gone and he's like still beat up from what's been happening to him. But now he's going to be able to like actually recover a bit and fight with more of his strength. And we get this panel of him with black eyes and just his face beat the fuck up but he's still smiling and raising a fist at the armed goons who have been fighting him. And there's just a ward bubble from off-panel going, oh no, dot dot dot. I love a uh, Superman is about to kick the shit out of you panel. And the next panel, too, is of Lex watching through the camera footage, and on the footage is just a close-up on Superman's fist and the ward bubble of one of the men screaming, ah! And then it's statics. Straight out of that one scene in Aliens. It's very fun. And Superman wins the fight, but is still knocked the fuck out from the residual effects of kryptonite exposure. But luckily, Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen TM, is here to arrive, is trying to lift him up and help, and essentially is here to save the day. In this case, it means that he waves for a truck as he's just trying to get them a ride to get them someplace safe for 
Superman can rest up away from basically everyone because obviously everyone would want his attention. And we just get these scenes of them two talking as Superman is in the passenger seat and Jimmy Olsen is recklessly driving this truck and they end up deciding that they will take Superman to their friend Clark's house because Clark can be trusted. Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen once again proving that he is the most valuable member of this team. He is a short ginger teenager who has just saved Superman's ass. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Luther picks up Lois, uh, saying he wants to show her something. Uh, So he specifically shows her just, like, the fight and the footage that he has from his man attacking the, um, attacking Superman, although he lies and pretends that it's uh, footage from his trucks and not, like, footage that he captured from the goons. Um, explicitly saying that something is hurting Superman and he's going to find out what. And this is important as like a moment of giving Lois the sense that Superman can be harmed because he'd had that conversation with his parents, but he's never mentioned anything of the sort to Lois. So before now, she's never seen direct evidence of him being able to be harmed like this. Meanwhile, while this is all happening, on the way to... Their trustworthy friend Clark's house, uh, Superman is like passed out for a bit, has a dream of an exploding planet, and then this couple looking like they're about to kiss against the backdrop of the exploding planet, and Jimmy wakes Superman up. They arrive at Clark's house, they knock on the door, and we get the splash page of Clark Kent opening the door, asking Superman? Question mark? And Jimmy struggling to help him through the door and going, Clark, give me a hand, will you? This guy weighs a ton. So we have Clark Kent opening the door for Jimmy and Superman. I, I love shit like that. Just the, the absolute bonkers, Silver Age, what the fuck is happening, Superman, like moment there is just so great. Uh, the answer is it's it's a robot. Superman has, has some Clark Kent robots and some Superman robots. So he gets Jimmy to leave him alone with his robot. Specifically, Clark free. Because he has a closet full of them, at least three of them, which once Jimmy has left, because the scene ends with Perry calling and being like, if you don't get your ass in my office and get me this story that you're supposed to be reporting to me, and quote-unquote Clark and Superman are just like, we got it, go ahead, and... Jimmy leaves, and then we get Superman ushering Clark to the closet, saying, Thank you, Clark Free. Execute sleep protocols. And then just the smiling robot, Hey, no problem. We're pals, right? Which is specifically him exactly imitating uh, something that Jimmy had said earlier in the conversation. It's fun. It's very 1950s cover. Why are there 17 Batmen and they all have different color costumes? It's very that. It's like, I could ask the how of how Superman has these robots and how they work, but I don't care. It's just fun. Well, he already has the Fortress of Solitude in this. We see him there earlier, so he's got access to some kind of alien tech and also little-known Superman power. He's actually super smart as well. Yeah, it's like when you consider his speed. The thing about super speed is that you can immediately connect the dots to becoming a super genius because he could theoretically have just read literally anything. So, yeah, 
it makes sense this could be the number one mind in the world of AI at this point because it's Superman and why not and he's using it for the creation of Clark's one through free to help when he needs to hide the truth from Jimmy Olsen uh so anyway uh moving further on with the story Lois confronts Gallo with like his criminal past and he offers to tell her a fantastic story one I fear you'll not believe and she's obviously game to find out what exactly is going on with this guy who you know seems so bad but he's donated six months of his casino's profit like all of the profit to a children's hospital like he's, he's been mixed signals this whole time meanwhile clark flies home he initially refuses to talk to his mother about what's bothering him and wants to talk to his father because well that toxic masculinity bullshit from earlier and she immediately shuts it down and says clark listen to me if there's something troubling you i want to know no matter what your father told you and she has the line of him not being the only kin to super hearing. Because before when him and the dad talked alone, literally all they did was walk out on the porch. It would not have been hard for her to just stand near the door and listen. And yeah, it's just a nice little moment for Ma Kent to be like, fuck off and include me. I can handle being worried about you. The good you do is worth it. Um, at which point... Jonathan Kent arrives home and asks, uh, she, they're, they're having pie, so he asks about having a slice, and uh, Martha says, you can get your own darn pie, Jonathan Kent. He goes, what did I say? Like, surprised or bewildered at, like, the first thing that he's come home to, like, smiling in a good mood, and the first thing he's come home to is essentially his wife being like, fuck off and get your own fucking pie. But yeah, it's nice. It's just very, like, don't you two patronize me and treat me like I'm something that's gonna, you know, blow away in the wind or whatever. Meanwhile, throughout all of this, we've had Lex discussing with some of his employees, his other super mad scientists underneath of him, and they've been researching um, their footage of Superman being weakened during the fight from earlier and the energy signatures that they picked up from the casino building at the same time and essentially the head like scientist under Lufor says that she can't identify what this energy signature is meaning that it's something brand new and potentially even from a different planet so Lex and his crew know there's something going on in the casino that they're gonna have to check out and at this point we have another Clark with his parents conversation Ma Kent's included because she, again, like we said, is refusing to not be included. And it's him telling them, he doesn't yet know it was kryptonite, of course, but just telling them about the kryptonite incident where he was suddenly weakened and how it's changed his thoughts a bit on just like feelings of mortality, of getting to experience that sort of physical pain in a way that he hasn't gotten to very much before in his life. And sort of him philosophically framing it in a good light of just like the reminder that he can die making it feel like he can relate more to his parents yeah specifically maybe i can be killed does that make me any less of a person the way i see it it means i'm just like you and pa that means i'm twice the man i thought i was yesterday as he hugs both of them at the same time and to give an idea of how sale draws superman in this his parents are like tiny little old people um but they they come up to his tits 
uh, on on a similar scale, like to fucking apocalypse. Uh, back when we were covering um the Hickman X Men with uh you, uh, but moving forward with the story, uh, Gallo has clearly explained whatever's going on to Lois, and so she's calling in Olsen to come in and help her cover the story. Meanwhile, Lex is also getting his own little helicopter ready and, again, just impending threat of Lex Luthor. Lois calls everybody in. Uh, She, Superman, Jimmy have all met up with Gallo at his casino. Superman notes as he's landing that he x-rays the building and sees a large chamber with a lead lining that he can't penetrate. And that's anxiety-inducing, but Lois's presence puts him at ease. And Gallo essentially starts explaining the overarching plot to the rest of the characters, where he says that all of the research about Gallo's past is accurate, And it's specifically Gallo saying, He has killed or ordered the deaths of over 140 people, including his parents. And Superman asks, Is this a confession? At which point Gallo goes, It's not a confession, more of a testimony. You see, I'm not Tony Gallo. I am simply inhabiting his form to facilitate this meeting. I arrived here on Earth 27 years ago. And just tells the tale that... He traveled here from a doomed planet and could not communicate but had a companion on the journey. That companion going on a small rocket toward the Earth. And he doesn't have to say it explicitly because Superman just can put two and two together and realizes that they essentially journeyed to the Earth together from the exploding Krypton. Um, so we mentioned that each issue had a little prologue about the uh, kryptonite. Um, it essentially chronicled the story of this large chunk of kryptonite um, being fought over by various criminals and warlords and eventually arriving in Gallo's hands after he kills his own parents um, in order to take over like their criminal empire. So like we just finished establishing that um, for some reason the kryptonite wanted Gallo to come to Metropolis and to be closer to Superman. And so this is where we find out what's going on. Essentially, the alien possessing Gallo was accidentally trapped inside the kryptonite while observing the destruction of Krypton. Because his species basically go around the universe, like, watching stuff happen. If you're familiar with Marvel Comics, it's very much a species like that of the Watcher, where the whole thing is just, we observe, and like specifically has just like some sort of really good memory of like actively like recording information he's seeing he's not like a particularly like robotic looking design but there's at least like some sort of in that vein sort of a really good recall like you would expect from like a recording sort of android type character basically the alien offers to show superman his family and Krypton before the destruction of it. And like, this is clearly the first time he's actually gotten to see any of his past in this continuity or this version of him. But in order to do so, Superman has to be exposed to the Kryptonite, which will probably has a decent chance of killing him if they aren't careful. Yeah. And you know, Superman is just like, do it. You know, this is his chance to learn things that he's never gotten to before about his past and that he has no other way of finding out, so naturally he's going to do it. And meanwhile, 
uh, Lois and Jimmy are also there. So essentially what's going to happen is that Clark and the observer alien are going to like convey on another dimensional plane mentally and Lois and Jimmy are going to be there to close the door on the lead blockage so that Superman doesn't die from the kryptonite poisoning while this is happening. But conveniently Lex Luthor shows up with all of his armed henchmen to stop Lois and co from closing the door on the kryptonite as they take more scientific measurements of what's happening and aren't in much of a hurry because if Superman were to die, who would care? And meanwhile, Superman himself enters more or less just like an astral plane, another dimensional plane, where the alien being that was inhabiting Gallo's body is leading him through what he calls a sensory recreation of the capital city. Uh, capital city of Krypton, and just this futuristic, sort of classical 50s pulp magazine sci-fi cityscape. Yeah, and so this is when Superman first gets to see his father, uh, Jor-El, who's basically wearing the classic Superman outfit, but he's got a little circlet on his head as well, and establishing, you know, if you know Superman, you know this, Krypton was gonna blow up Jor-El figured it out, but no one listened to him, so he and his wife put Superman in a little baby rocket and fired him off. Meanwhile, back in the sort of real world, I guess is what you would say, while everyone is being held hostage by Luther, Gallo wakes up, and because the alien is now, like, with Superman, he's no longer possessing Gallo, and so Gallo is clearly just, like, incredibly mentally disturbed and deranged probably in part due to being possessed by an alien for like six months or something stupid like that initially threatening everyone after breaking out of his restraints with guns but he winds up uh committing suicide while um luther then considers the possibility of using this as an excuse to be able to kill lois and framing it up as a murder suicide yeah and like as gallo was doing all of this there were also, like, flashbacks to, like, his parents, and he's, like, mentally unstable, so, you know, there's not, like, emotionally, he's not going through, like, a clear A to B thing of, like, clear thinking, but there's definitely, like, the implication of part of what drives the suicide beyond the just, like, post-possession uh, confusion may also be, like, guilt and regret over, like, murder of his family, and... Yeah, essentially, Lex Luthor, evil as ever, utmost evil for him here, is literally just like, hmm, I can use this to my advantage. The panel right after, or rather, rather during the suicide, we have Lex in front of the giant letters BLAM uh, for the gunshots that Gallo is double pistoling himself in the head. And it's just Lex going, meh. Like, the word bubble's literally just, meh. As he looks on, unshocked, utterly unbothered, by this scene of major violence right in front of him. Comes up with the idea, like you were saying, to kill Lois. Jimmy Olsen, I guess, has taken advantage of everyone naturally focusing their attention on the man who was just a threat and then killed himself where Jimmy has then gotten a taser and a gun from someone and is now threatening to get Lex through the back, which gets the goons to stand down and they don't shoot Lois. 
And meanwhile, on the Dream Dimensionscape, we have the alien essentially showing Superman footage of his parents' last moments alive. And the alien basically mentions how he went to Krypton as an observer to see a moment of historical significance. Superman asks him why he didn't warn anyone if he knew the planet was going to blow up. And the alien just does the whole, I am a watcher, it is not my way thing. But one person did know it was going to happen, and that was Superman's father. And the only one who believed him was his mother. And they began building preparations for a rocket to take their baby to safety, or rather for all three of them to fly to safety. But then the planet's destruction came sooner than they thought, and they had not had time to build a full rocket that would actually be able to see all three of them. They only had a prototype. And so uh, Superman's parents made the decision to send him in the rocket in the hopes that he would live while they died back on the planet. Oh, and it's established that the reason the alien's trapped in the kryptonite now is that he had to, like, dodge Superman's rocket as it launched because he wasn't expecting them to actually manage to launch it off. Um, and wound up fused inside the kryptonite and unable to escape as it, like, flew away with the planet. Meanwhile, back on the corporeal plane, we have Jimmy Olsen holding the gun he still has, pointed at Lex Lufor's lifting helicopter, yelling, Sayonara Lufor. Jimmy Olsen, MVP. As Lufor and his goons is effectively just elected to go ahead and leave the scene. They've already got plenty of data from their time there reading on the kryptonite. So Lufor's pretty much got the main things he wanted, even if Superman's not dead yet. He also has Gallo's ring, which has a shot of the kryptonite in it. Yeah. Superman ultimately wakes up to see the scene going on all around them. And we then move forward not that much in time to Superman essentially aiding the Watcher alien in a request. And essentially it's that in return for the information, the alien would like help being freed from his kryptonite prison. And Superman essentially flies the gigantic leaden bunker towards the sun. And I guess kryptonite must just be a really fucking hard metal to penetrate or to melt. Because they have to get right up in that sun to free the alien from the kryptonite. Of course, the sun blasts open the lead, blasts the kryptonite, but the exposure to the kryptonite essentially has Superman like dead weight. And, you know, in thanks, the alien flies the now kryptonite poison Superman back to safety, back on Earth. And it's established during this, by the way, that the alien's name in... English would be equivalent to Bridgewater, so we might call him that as we talk more about him in a minute. The alien's name is Bridgewater. And after his mission is over, we essentially end on Superman catching his parents up on all of this of what's happened. And his mother asks if they should start calling him Cal-El from now on, now that they've learned like about his parents and about his birth name. And Superman gets the line of, Nobody had to tell me what my name was. It's Clark, the name my ma and pa gave me. And we get another family hug on the swing on the Clark family farm. We get the narrative caption, uh, Superman's internal monologue. Mother, father, ma and pa, 
the five of us take a moment to settle in together as we get just like this family adjusting to new truths that they've learned but it hasn't you know upset the core of their relationship at all like I like the way this part is handled in terms of the like adoption aspects of the story of this family is still this family and you know like there's nothing wrong with Superman learning more about his birth parents but that also doesn't erase his relationship with his parents his adoptive parents and just sort of like their world adjusting to accommodate the new information that they've learned as they all continue to grow into themselves and after that we just get a brief shot where essentially Clark Kent asks Lois out on a date and she's just like what the hell I'll get my coat and we end on the promise of him courting Lois as Clark this time in um what is fully just a Norman Rockwell painting for the last panel, frankly. Yeah, like the suits and the hats are all very old school. Uh, this this whole thing has that real classic, like, 40s, 50s aesthetic, even though it seems to be set nebulously more modern day. Yeah, at least with regards to some of the technology that's in use. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the plot summary. We sort of wound up talking about some of the stuff, but um, you wanted to talk about Lex Luthor's eyebrows. Now, Lex Luthor, his entire character is that he's hateful, hates Superman, has, like, gigantic egotistical streak, sometimes, like, jealousy streak with regards to Superman. Like, a petulant man-baby with his anger directed at Superman is basically who Lex is. And never is that more felt than when he is just staring angrily at Superman with these gigantic caterpillar eyebrows or like eyebrows and dramatic eyelashes and just he's bald but the hair around those eyes is more than enough to express his utter hatred. They're Carl Lycos eyebrows. Full Sauron. I like Lex in this as much as I ever really like Lex in that... Like, every character present here is a very, like, classic, fundamental core of who that character usually is distilled, you know? It's it's very much just, like, stripped down. Who is Lois Lane at her most base? Who is Perry at his most base? Who is Lex Luthor? In a way that the characters are, like, archetypal, but I don't mean in a way that's, like, shallow or bad. It's in a way that's very much just, like, okay, why have these characters been kept around? What is the core of their relationships? And what are their main personality traits? And what does that mean in the way that they each bounce off of one another and how they fit into the larger cast? You know, why, why does this work? How has it worked so well for so long? And, I mean... Honestly, the answer is that the the way these characters... These aren't quite the versions that first appeared back in the uh, 1939, and I think for Luthor, like, 1940, 41, something like that. Um, but this is definitely, like, the ultimate distillation of the characters they involved into. Actually, I would argue the most fully formed Superman character in their first appearance is actually Lois Lane. She's basically no different in the 40s than she is right now. Like, maybe the one difference is Lois nowadays is a little better at getting out of trouble without needing Superman to show up, but it's it's just because nowadays she gets herself into trouble that is just, like, constantly of the giant, like, monster is attacking, or 
um, 20 guys with guns or something like that level rather than just like a couple of guys on a street corner. So I know we already talked about sales are at the beginning of this, but can we talk about it some more? Because it is just so gorgeous yeah. and lush and like it's very stylized in the way that sales art always is but also like very detailed in the way that a lot of sales art is the way he draws clothes on all of the characters is so fantastic you get a lot of like little lines to indicate the fabric and the different textures are like like they're all done very specifically um like there's a scene where lois is wearing a skirt that like it's a black skirt but it's clearly made of a shiny material because the light is reflecting off of it so differently than the other fabric around them yeah like what sale and stewart do of the line work and color on the clothes is great we always love well-drawn clothes on this podcast but just like even on pages like we're looking at one right now where it cuts from Gallo to Clark and Jimmy to Lois in the office. And there's so many different clothes on display, and they're all utterly different textures. Where Lois's skirt, like you said, is that type of material. It's very clearly a different type of material from her top, which is a very different material from Clark's suit jacket, is a different material from Jimmy Olsen's cap, is a different material from gallows like overshirt which in turn is different from his tie and the way that the wrinkles of fabric move is different on each one the way that the shading hits is different on each one you know it's just like this is art clearly conveying an abundance of different like textile materials which is one of my favorite things to ever see in comics um i i also love the um stylized well the uh Honestly, a lot of the characters, especially, like, background characters, are very caricatured. You know, you've got a lot of characters who have foreheads that are just huge, or, um, Superman's chin, which is full, you know, DC animated universe. Like, he's got a chin and a half. He's, like, the crimson chin from Fairly Odd Parents. Jimmy is just, like, so short compared to everyone else, just to emphasize, like, the little, like, kid running around aspects of the character. Although, I don't think he's meant to be a teenager in this. I think he's meant to be in his 20s like everyone else. Yeah, but I could still, like, easily believe that he's, like, a little bit younger than the rest of them. Like, there's definitely a he's the kid of the group, even if it's largely in spirit sort of thing. And, like, in terms of characters looking different, you know, the various characters just have different touches. Like, Gallo's cheekbones versus all of the wrinkles on Ma and Pa Kent. You know, and then again, we've mentioned differences in character height. The character, the caricature, had to say that word many a times to try and say it out correctly. The caricature elements of the characters are definitely present in a way that works and just, you know, gives quick impressions of who everyone is in this narrative. And the thing about sales work here is that it manages the seeming contradiction of looking both classic and very modern at the same time. Where, like, these versions and these visuals for these characters, you know, are takes on basic concepts of them that are decades old and very in keeping with just, like, the idea of what does a classic superhero look like. But the actual rendering, you know, is still very different from 
what you would see if you were actually looking at a 1940s action comic. And there's just so much attention paid to different details. Like we've talked about clothing already, but just the flow of motion from one panel to another, the variety in composition, you know, from the action to the character's talking moments. Everything just feels very clean and fresh and polished and very intentionally made. And the thing about Sale's work is that there's no other artist that looks like it. You know, like, obviously a million people, you know, love his work or must consider it influential and yada yada yada. But this isn't a style that I would ever say this is a house style or that there are like really clear imitators who successfully actually imitate it because no one can imitate it. You know, it's like so classic looking, but also his mixture of skill with just his own personal aesthetic. It's just a really unique mix of different viewpoints that no one else quite has the same as. Yeah, I would say Sale was right up there with like Frank Quitely for just like, this art doesn't look like it was literally no one else could have drawn this when you look at it. There's there's no one else draws things this way, this well. Yeah, Tim Sale is one of those figures where like, if you just put a bunch of comic pages in front of me, no credits, no anything, just the pencils, even the signatures whited out, there would be no mistaking, there would be no second guessing, like, it's always immediately obvious whose work it is. I also want to make sure not to forget to the opening segments of these issues with the prologue features on the kryptonite and on Bridgewater's time spent uh, captured within it. These really stand out from the rest of the issues, and that they largely feature Sale delivering some work that, like, has comparatively fewer, like, sharp black outlines, and just, like, the way that the color blocking is done, and it's all just very emotive and just very lovely to look at, and especially, like, in the first two issues with the images of the Buddhist monastery, and we get these really lovely flowers and mountains, and it's just gorgeous to look at, and the coloration in general, uh, Stewart's work is perfect. Like, this penciler and colorist combination, you know, their work together is perfect and brings out the best of both of them. And it's, you know, definitely a case of just, like, if you paired either of them with someone else, the finished result would not look the same at all. Like, it's just a perfect match for the overall aesthetic. Yeah, the, um, the colors are, like, they're not flats, but they are mostly flat. You know, most of the time today, you'd see, like, a lot of gradient work and colors and stuff like that, and here it's very specifically, like, flats with highlights and with, um, shadows, but that's it. And then there's a lot of, um, places where, like, even we've talked about how textured the art is but there's places in the art where the colors are just adding more texture like on windows this won't have been something that sale drew but there is texture on all of the windows with different gradients well, with different uh shades of like blue um to just give you that sense of like they're reflecting something even if we're not gonna go through the trouble of drawing all of that there's 
water with lines of different shades of blue in it. The way that fire is done, there's texture added to it that I think, again, is just in the colors. It's really effective and really, like, specific work that works to really enhance the existing pencil and inked. Yeah. Uh, did you have any other specific, like, visual moments you want to shout out before we move to a few more, like, thematic things? Just that the whole volcano sequence is astonishing and the way that each page is laid out so that in the middle of each page we get a little panel of lois waiting on clock uh, on superman showing up um while superman is nearly dying across the rest of the page it's very effective yeah it, like keeps the through line going of the back and forth so that like their scenes are in parallel and there's never a cut to just the one is very effective all right and then um did you want to talk about Bridgewater? Yes. Um, Bridgewater and also just the general theme of the kryptonite and of Superman's weaknesses, which, as we said already, this is a very early career Superman, and I like the approach it takes and how the story handles the question of Superman's invulnerability and largely just like his psychological, emotional you know, take on it, his views on it, his reactions to and coping, and just like the emphasis of just like, even if he's about to be okay, we still have the split second of him being scared when he encounters a threat he's never encountered before, because, you know, in story, this is a character who essentially knows nothing of his past, nothing of his limits, he does not own the real-world trading card with his stats to know just how invulnerable he is, and he does not have his weaknesses written out on a Wikipedia page for him. And even if he did, it would be written by a human and not by a real-world human who had read the story. He is living the story. And I just like the way that the concerns are handled, and I just think the story is a great example of how you can, in fact, write a Superman story where he has well-handled weaknesses, and him being such a powerful character does not mean he can't be compelling, you know, because you get the sort of arguments of just like, Superman is boring and he's too strong, but meanwhile, everyone's favorite member of the Justice League is Martian Manhunter. You know, like, if the writing is strong enough, it doesn't matter how powerful the hero is. I just think this is a good example of that. I think for most people, their favorite member of the Justice League is Batman these days, but I would actually have to agree on the Martian Manhunter. When you get that dynamic together, especially, like, in the animated cartoon, uh, he is vital. Yeah, I mostly just name-drop him as an example of as someone who is or even even more strong than Superman of just the point of just like it's not the actual power levels that matter if the writing is competent. Yeah, although his fire vulnerability is just hilarious to me. Just Batman is like, oh, I'll just carry a pack of matches with me just in case. For his little Justice League betrayal belt pouches, one of them he has kryptonite for Superman, he has whatever things for the other members. For Martian Manhunter, I guess he can just have a little 7-Eleven matchbox. A little, just a teeny little dollar box of matches. I really, really love the idea of actually making a story out of Superman facing his mortality for the first time. Because, like, most versions of Superman's origin 
will just sort of establish the kryptonite because Lex has, like, reverse-engineered it. Like, if you watch the 70s movie, Lex, like, figures it out, and it's the thing that lets Lex actually be a threat in the final action scene. But the story isn't about Superman discovering who could die. The story is about Superman kicking the shit out of Lex Luthor. And Kryptonite is just the thing that stops you from getting to that 20 minutes sooner. In this, the plot is actually about, like, how is he going to handle this? And then using that as a way to talk about Superman, both as, like... His story sort of crosses over simultaneously with adoption and, like, immigration. And with, like, being a refugee... Like, there's so many ways that you and experiences that Superman can speak to on those fronts. Um, like, I'm technically a first-generation immigrant, kind of a second, because I mostly grew up in this country, and, like, I can read that into Superman. There's aspects of that where, like, in my case, my home is there. I can, I can go back to Scotland, and I can be like, oh, wow, I didn't know this about Scotland, because why would I? I don't live there. You know, that's a relatable thing that Superman can do. It's, I don't really, yeah, I can't think of any other time where they've actually turned this into a story. I have to say, if you were, uh, Warner Brothers, if you are listening to our podcast for some insane reason, and you're trying to figure out how to do, like, the Superman version of the Batman movie that you just did, is this story? This is what you should do. Yeah, this is, like, a story that would just beg to be the basis of a movie adaptation. Like, all the essential characters are there... There's no elements of the plots that are, like, too difficult or really awkward and have to change them. You know, like, all the Dark Phoenix movies kind of struggle with being like, are we really gonna bring in the aliens, you know? And, like, skipping over Phoenix Saga before Dark Phoenix, you know? Like, there's no weird complications. It's just very simple and distilled, and this could easily be just like the pinnacle superman movie i'm shocked they haven't done one of those dc animated movies off of this i i guess this isn't a famous enough story maybe but this is really good yeah which you asked me before and i kind of transitioned more to the weakness than the alien but uh what are your thoughts on bridgewater himself so if if you look at this book you'll look at the covers and several of the covers are superman in a big fight with bridgewater which makes no sense because he never does that in the book i find bridgewater really interesting the i always enjoy the characters who like the 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 oh i don't interfere but then they sort of always wind up interfering anyway like if you read marvel comics the watcher is at this point kind of a joke for not interfering because he interferes all the fucking time um, and has done since he first appeared in the 60s. Hell, even if you don't go to the more direct action examples, it's kind of like, well, are you interfering by letting us know that you're here and watching and you've sort of alerted us to the existence of all these races of aliens that are watching and you're just kind of giving us a sense of, like, overall interplanetary awareness and you're kind of telling us some pretty big deals we didn't know, but you're not interfering... I really love how he he understood the value that, like, knowing about Krypton would have for Superman. And, like, as a mechanism for showing it, I think having someone there to help explain it to him was really good. Um, Most of the time, it's just like, oh, there's some computer drives on the spaceship. And there's a a crystal with a hologram of Jor-El living in it. But I always feel it's a little too easy. And even, like, impersonal. Like, there's something different about having a guide character at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I really like him in that aspect. I, um, 
I think what he does narratively, I think especially the um, the setup at the end where Superman wins basically because Jimmy saves the day. The the idea of having it, the big sort of final threat for Superman being just like he could spend too long being exposed to the kryptonite. Again, it's just like really clever and it's very different from your standard Superman story where you would end it with a giant punch-up with the alien, and finding a peaceable solution to things was really clever. It sort of lets the elements of the plot, like, usher their own way out so we can get back to the actual narrative thematic concerns that are the real heart of it. You know, because, like, Jimmy facilitates via the threatening, but ultimately we really just have Lex and his crew just waddling out the door so that Superman can wake up and we can get back to what the heart of the story is actually about. Because it's not about anyone punching Luthor. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's setting up for Luthor being more of a threat in the future because he's figured out Kryptonite. There's a weird thing with the art in the final issue, which he doesn't have this in in any in the earlier art, where for some reason Bridgewater has developed Superman's hair curl. I'm just confused by it. I can't figure out what that's about, but like, it's very specific. I assume it's like him having some sort of mutability over his form and like taking on a slight like physical aspect of who he's talking to to like mirror and try and comfort or establish like familiarity and something common between them but yeah it's like not actually remarked upon in the plot at all and yet he keeps his devil horns which yeah so so you know what he looks like he is a green human essentially um but with no mouth and like kind of an angular jaw and um flat green eyes no nose either it's all just like flat for his face and then two little horns like little devil horns and he kind of glows yeah which at the end of the story once superman has freed him uh mon pa can ask what's happened to bridgewater and Superman essentially just, like, guesses that he's flown back home and says something like, imagine being gone from the farm for 25 years. So Bridgewater's presumably just left the planet. If this was more of an in-continuity sort of story, you know, then there would be the fun thing of, well, eventually we'll bring Bridgewater back or bring his race of aliens back or something. You know, but like we said about Lex shuffling off, you know, Bridgewater in turn shuffles off for superman to get back to like lois and his family at the heart of the story but i think with bridgewater it's kind of interesting that they do the whole sort of i am a watcher and i think his phrasing is something like empathy is not inborn to my species but by watching so much we have like gained it you know where it's like not standard full like average human expressions of emotion but he like clearly understands emotional phenomena at least intellectually and like how much like knowledge will mean to clark and all of that well the um the little short vignettes at the start show just all of the violence that happens in front of this uh kryptonite over the course of 27 years until finally gallo is so monstrous that he feels compelled to act um, I always find these, like, I, I like these characters who are, like, the swear, sworn not to interfere types, these historian figures, but I always find them really, like, morally complex because not interfering is just letting bad shit happen most of the time, and then I guess, like, I like when they are, they get to the point where they ha- feel they need to act. I always think it's interesting finding out, like, 
what's the final straw for the watcher what's the final straw for bridgewater yeah it's like a good moral question even if the narrative doesn't like super explicitly jump into it uh with how little of the like page time bridgewater is actually the focus but like here part of it is him just like having had enough with gallows like murder of so many people yeah i mean was there anything else specific that you wanted to discuss um, I think I'm pretty good, unless you had any more final points before we wrap up. Uh, not really, just to recommend the story once again. I know we've talked about it a lot, but you should just go and read it, because it's definitely a story that deserves to be read more than it has been, I think. Yeah, and uh, this is available on the DC Unlimited service, so if you have access to that, you know it is available digitally to read. I don't know the status of, you know, whatever print editions, of if they're in print or not, but... It's at least accessible easily digitally. Uh, So check it out. Um, As we said, it was uh, Superman Confidential 1 through 5 and 11. No idea why that last issue came out so, like, late in the game, but... I assume just, like, scheduling conflicts or deadlines or something. It is DC, so that seems very likely. Yeah. (laughs) But with that said... That wraps up our first time covering Superman. We will have more Superman episodes coming soon, uh, but not quite yet next week, because next week we are diving back into Animorphs, because I want to make sure you're caught up in time for when the next volume comes out later this year. So we are going to go ahead and read Animorphs graphic novel number two, The Visitor. This is a Rachel book. Uh, Again, adaptation of the books by Chris Grine should be very in print, very accessible. This just came out last October, and they're doing pretty well, so should be quite easy to get your hands on. It's real good. Yeah. Specifically, we're going to be talking about cat morphs and just fun cats. Uh, But with all that said, thank you for listening, and see you then. See you next week.